Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. This morning I want to speak to us uh, about a deadly virus that's on the loose, and it's not COVID-19. It is called legalism. Like a virus, uh, legalism does not discriminate. All of us have been infected by legalism. Uh, If we're not displaying symptoms of legalism, the virus could still be there, just lying dormant. We don't set out to become legalists. In fact, uh, most of us, more often than not, we start out wanting to do the right thing by God. We start out wanting to honor God and please Him and obey Him. But over time, uh, without even being aware, we turn into legalists. Legalism, in its most basic form, believes that one can earn and retain God's love, God's approval, God's acceptance, even salvation by observing an an external code of behavior. Uh, Performance and self-righteousness, then, are legalists' primary motivations for obeying God. Uh, A legalist thinks of the Christian faith as little more than obedience to God's law. And this is how a legalist reasons. The Bible says, I should pray, The Bible says I should read the Bible. The Bible says I should go to church. So I read the Bible, go to church, and pray. You might call such Christians Nike Christians. You know, they just do it. Whatever's in there, just follow the rule book. And it's not anchored uh, in their relationship with God. It's just about following rules uh, without even unpacking the spirit of the rule or the heart behind the rule. And that is why uh, when unpleasant things happen to legalists, uh, they're prone to conclude that God is punishing them uh, because they haven't been good enough. Conversely, if good things are happening to them, legalists say, oh, I I must have done something good. I must have done something well. I must be in God's good book. That's why he's blessing me. Uh, And your life is crap. Maybe you're not doing what God is supposed to do. And that's how legalists come across Legalists are prone to taking things that are biblically true. They're prone to taking personal convictions or traditions and make them biblically binding even though they're not. And one example of this is fasting, which is what we're going to look at this morning. We'll come to that later. Other examples can include uh, piercings, ear piercings, body piercings, tattoos, uh, music you listen to. I know some Christians... I feel very strongly about secular music, that as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, you shouldn't be listening to any kind of secular music. Uh, Some Christians have a strong conviction about homeschooling, and if parents are not homeschooling, how can they call themselves Christian parents? Uh, Another one is drinking alcohol or smoking. So there's a whole list of things Uh, that are there, that Christians feel strongly about and feel like they're all biblical binding. Here's how an author described his firsthand experience with legalism. I quote, I've had many close-up encounters with legalism. I came out of a fundamentalist culture that frowned on co-ed swimming, wearing shorts, jewelry or makeup, dancing, bowling, and reading the Sunday newspaper. Jim and Helen would know what I'm talking about, yeah? 
Alcohol was sin, was a sin of a different order with a sulfurous stench of hellfire about it. Later, I attended a Bible college where in an era of miniskirts, deans legislated a skirt length below the knee. Slacks on women were forbidden except during hayrides when they must be worn under skirts for modesty's sake. A rival Christian college went so far as to ban polka dot dresses since the dots might draw attention to a suggestive part of the body. Male students at our school had their own rules, including a restriction against hair covering the ears and a ban on facial hair. The college also attempted to monitor a student's uh, relationship with God. Each early morning, a, the, a bell would ring, summoning us to rise and have personal devotions. If caught sleeping in, we would have to read and write a report on a book such as The Christian Secret of a Happy Life. Some students dropped out of school. Some gladly kept the rules, and some learned to fake it leading a double life, unquote. And this particular college even had a 66-page book, page, a 66-page rule book, amazing, 66-page rule book, which they tried painstakingly to connect them to God's law, to the Bible, and presented them as the gospel. Can you see there? They were muddying the waters. They had the rules, fair enough, if you want to have rules, have rules, but they were connecting it to the Bible and making it sound like it's all part of the gospel. Now, keep this in mind, lest we get smug about ourselves or get too harsh with the Pharisees, the consummate legalists in Jesus' days. As we look at our text this morning from Mark chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 6. Prior to this account, Jesus already had a couple of run-ins with them already. One was over the forgiving of the sins uh, of the paralyzed men, you might remember from last week. And the other was Jesus' inclusion of Levi or Matthew as one of his uh, uh, apostles, as one of, his, one of the members of his team. And the text collectors were reviled by fellow Jews because they were considered working for the Romans and therefore as traitors. And here's Jesus including, calling Matthew to be one of his close disciples. The conflict that's been simmering boils over as we come to our text. Jesus has three verbal confrontations with the Pharisees over two important rules for the Pharisees that they were accusing Jesus of being blasé about. Because of what he was doing, because of the claims that he had made that he was God, Jesus and his disciples were coming under increasing scrutiny with the Pharisees looking for everything they can find to discredit Jesus and his band of followers. Now, just a little word about the Pharisees. Who were they? Well, it's derived from the Hebrew word that means to separate. So you get the idea of what they were about. They were wanting to cut themselves off, remove themselves off, uh, away from society and live their devoted lives to God. In fact, uh, that's, 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 that's their motivation. They, they, they devoted their lives to following God. They rose to prominence during Israel's return from exile in Babylon. Uh, they accepted 
the Old Testament as the written, inspired Word of God. They held firm to, to, to traditional values against the relativists and secularists of the first century. They were model citizens. Uh, they were not, you know, they were not, yeah, they, they were rule keepers. They were rule abiders. And uh, they would avoid the common vices uh, around them that was practiced. Most importantly, they were very zealous for the law of Moses, but, but they also felt very strongly about oral traditions that interpreted the law of Moses. Now, take, for example, the Sabbath law. We all know what the Sabbath law is about. The gist of it is God uh, worked for six days, creating the world, and then on the seventh day, he rested. And on this seventh day, we're supposed to also rest as humankind. That's the gist of it. So any work is forbidden on this holy day. But what constituted work? What was work and what wasn't work? So oral traditions would fill in the blanks. Oral traditions would, uh, would fill in the details that Moses left out. So... Here are some examples of their interpretations of, of some of the laws of Moses. Uh, a woman could not look in the mirror on the Sabbath, lest she sees a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out. I kid you not. You could swallow vinegar, but you couldn't gargle it. With the third commandment on not misusing the name of the Lord, that became a ban against using the Lord's name at all. So, to this day, a devout Jew would write G-D instead of God. And most certainly, you couldn't utter the name of God at all. You shall not commit adultery, led to rules against talking to or even looking at women who were not their wives. So the Pharisees who had lowered their heads and bumped into walls would wear their bruises and, uh, as badges of holiness. The problem was over time these oral traditions were regarded as sacred and as binding as God's Word. And Jesus' anger at them was not about the law of Moses, but their faulty interpretations, but also the equal weight that they were giving to these oral traditions as though they were God's very word himself. So now let's go to Jesus' altercations with them. The first altercation is over fasting, something that uh, the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist were practicing, but Jesus' disciples didn't. We're not told why uh, they fasted, but in the Old Testament, the only required fasting was on the Day of Atonement, one of Israel's seven annual solemn assemblies. It was a day of national mourning and repentance, something like a day of spiritual spring cleaning. The people of Israel on this day were to deny and humble themselves before God, and fasting was but one expression of this. Other examples of fasting in the Old Testament include the people of Israel fasting to lament national tragedies or in times of national crises. 
there are also instances of self-imposed fasting, uh, fastings for any personal reasons. Now, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, just kicked it up a notch. They fasted every day on Mondays and Thursdays. They fasted on Mondays and Thursdays every week. Presumably, that's what, the, uh, that's what John uh, the Baptist's disciples did as well. Fasting in Jesus' day had become a prerequisite for and a badge of devotion and humility before God, a practice to impress and sway God. And this was a commonly held view. It's just that the Pharisees were more disciplined than the rest in keeping this, uh, this, this discipline. And that's why they bragged about it in Luke 19 and looked down upon those who didn't practice fasting like they did. This is the context of the question to Jesus. How is it that our disciples, how is it that John's disciples are fasting, but yours are not? You're a bit slack there. You call yourself a rabbi, you call yourself a teacher, and you have a band of followers, and they're not dedicated at all. They're not devoted followers of God at all. Here's Jesus' reply, verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they, then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on, the, on an old garment. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into, new, into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins typical of rabbinical teaching style, he responds to the question with a question, followed by two illustrations. The first illustration is a wedding, which is the largest social event in the life of a village, an extravagant and joyful affair, lasting seven days for a virgin bride and three days for a remarried widow. Fasting, on the other hand, is often a solemn occasion, a time of mourning, Jesus likens his mission to a wedding and that he is the bridegroom. There's nothing wrong with fasting, but it is completely inappropriate at a wedding. That's what Jesus is saying. How can his disciples mourn in the presence of God's greatest redemptive gift to humankind? Why would his disciples mourn in the midst of God's sovereign and saving presence amongst them? While the Messiah uh, is not presented as a bridegroom in the Old Testament, God, as, uh, as Israel's faithful love, as Israel's husband, wooing back his unfa often unfaithful, rebellious, wayward bride, running off uh, with strangers, is common in the Old Testament. A time of mourning is more fitting when the bridegroom is taken away. And this was an oblique reference to his passion and to his death. Even then, mourning is not going to be permanent as the joy of the resurrection will transform all grief, sorrow, and hopelessness. Jesus goes on to say 
the manner in which we come to God and be in relationship with God will be completely overhauled under the new covenant that he will establish. And that's captured by the second illustration of the new wine in new wine skin. The Mosaic covenant that was established between Israel and God at Mount Sinai will be made obsolete, replaced by a new covenant that he will establish through his death on the cross and affirmed through his resurrection. They're incompatible like water and oil. Jesus hasn't come through that second little illustration. He's saying that he hasn't come to reform Judaism. He's come to inaugurate a new era of salvation. And for us, it means that you and I will never be put right with God based on what we do or don't do. It's purely based on what Jesus has done for us. That's the new wine. The second and third altercations are about the failure of Jesus and his disciples to observe the Sabbath. Yeah, God rested on the seventh day on the work of creation, uh, from his work of creation. Therefore, humankind, too, is to rest and abstain from every kind of labor, starting at sunset on Friday till sunset on Saturday, according to the Jewish calendar. Animals, slaves, even vegetation were to be rested. Aside from circumcision, keeping the Sabbath is the other, obser it's the other observance above all that marked them out as Jews, as God's people, and set them apart from their pagan neighbors over the centuries. So keeping the Sabbath, in other words, is no trivial matter. Let's go to the specifics of the first violation of the Sabbath. And, it come, and it's found in verses 23 to 28. As Jesus and his disciples are walking through a, a field of ripe grain, the, the Pharisees spotted his disciples plucking grain on Sabbath. Why do your disciples have no regard for Sabbath rules? He defends his disciples by giving them a two-part answer. Firstly, he refers to an incident involving King David, who together with men, his men, his hungry fugitives running from King Saul, entered God's temple to eat the only bread available there that only priests are allowed to eat. That was the law at the time, the, the bread of the presence. In, his, in this explanation, Jesus is putting himself on par with King David at a time when King David was anointed king, but not yet enthroned. The implication here is that Jesus is the true king, the Messiah, anointed by God, but not yet enthroned, which will occur at his death, resurrection, and ascension. So littered throughout the Gospel of Mark, you see all these hints that Jesus is dropping about his identity as the Messiah. See, this was not an act of civil disobedience, but a deliberate act that if the strict regulations about the bread of the presence could be set aside for a human king, King David, how much more for the Messiah, whom Mark presents as a descendant and Lord of King David. He doubles down on this point with a second answer. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And this is the second time Jesus uses the, the title Son of Man. 
His favorite self-designation, which we saw last week, is a reference to a messianic figure in Daniel chapter 7, whose arrival and enthronement signals the start of God's kingdom. In other words, Jesus was presenting himself as divine. But Jesus was also saying that Sabbath was intended by God to bless his people with rest, not to crush them with harsh, inexplicable, legalistic, and burdensome rules and regulations about what work is and what work isn't. Now, is Jesus saying that keeping the Sabbath isn't important? Not at all, not at all. He's simply affirming that Sabbath is an occasion to do good rather than simply a time to refrain from work. Jesus is giving emphasis to mercy, not ritual. A scholar by the name of Garland writes, the question then is not whether something is or is not allowed, but whether or not what we do helps or hinders those who are in need. To do evil is always prohibited, regardless of the day of the week. To do good is always required, regardless of the day of the week. Christians should be distinguished by their doing good. As one outsider observed about the early church, see how these Christians love each other. To be clear then, Jesus and his disciples never broke the Sabbath law. In fact, the law of Moses actually made generous provisions, provision for t- poor travelers like the disciples. In other words, what they did was actually permissible. But the Pharisees missed it because they saw themselves as morally superior. They valued their tradition over and above the Scripture. Because of this sense of moral superiority, they were harsh and and exacting in their application of the law. The purpose of God's law was always intended to point point people towards loving God and loving neighbors. What Jesus here is doing is challenging the Pharisees' traditions about the Sabbath, yeah? You've got to get a hold of this, that Jesus didn't just go out and disrespect it the Sabbath law. He was challenging their traditions. The second Sabbath violation involves Jesus himself healing a man with a shriveled hand at a synagogue. And interestingly, Sabbath was Jesus' favorite day to heal. (laughs) He loved healing people on Sabbath. This time, Jesus seizes the initiative and asks the question after asking the man to stand stand up publicly. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save or to kill? But they remained silent. I mean, you you look at the question, it's really a no-brainer question, right? Right? Is Sabbath a day to do good or to destroy, to to save or to destroy? No-brainer question. And yet, the Pharisees were stumped by the question. Now, either they knew the answer to the question and, and chose not to answer, or they didn't know the answer because they haven't consulted their rule book that re- read like an encyclopedia. We can't answer you now because we need to check our book under page. So we've got to look at the index because we don't know where it's found. But if you give us an hour or so, we'll be able to tell you. 
on a no-brainer question like that, that was their response. And can you understand why Jesus was so ticked off at them? Jesus was so ticked off at them. In verses 5 to 6, he looked around them in anger. I love to see what Jesus' angry face looked like. What was it like? He looked around them in anger and deeply distressed. He was grieved at what? At their stubborn hearts and said to the man with the shriveled hand, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, is a sober reminder to all of us on two things. The first is legalism rooted in self-righteousness or Pharisaism is deadly. The virus of legalism does not discriminate. It is the one consistent thing that made Jesus super angry time and time again. And he singled out the Pharisees for single them out for his strong, strongest attacks, calling them snakes, vipers, blind guides, whitewashed wombs. We can, can hardly conceive the notion that Jesus could utter those words, but he did. You snake, you vipers, whitewashed tombs. And he directed it at the religious, the legalists. And this is one of the greatest ironies of Scripture. Here we have the Pharisees who possess great zeal for God, but their zeal did not draw them closer to God, but away from God. Because here is Jesus, the Torah in the flesh, God in the flesh, in their midst. And what was their response? They plotted to kill him. They plotted to kill him. They have forgotten that God's law is more than a command, but a reflection of his character. This means we obey in part because our obedience is born out of a desire to conform to his character. It is not enough to like Jesus. We need to also be like Jesus because we're drawn to him. But the purpose of God's law is both ver vertically and horizontally directed. All of God's law are designed to help us love God more and love our neighbors more. And that is why the Apostle John was emphatic that one of the ways our love for God is revealed is through our treatment of people, is through the way we treat people. To put it simply, if our love, and I want to stress this, if our love, if our zeal for God lead us to be harsh, to be judgmental, to be condemning of others, we can be certain that something is seriously amiss about our faith. Can I say that without any fear of contradiction? If our zeal for God, if our love for God causes us to be harsh, to be judgmental, to be condemning of others, we can be certain that something is seriously out of whack with our faith. The second thing we learn from Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees is this. It's scary. Legalism is scary. The most noble motives to do right by God can be distorted 
and corrupted. Remember I said earlier, the Pharisees did not set out to be legalists, to be like that, but that's what happened to them. They started off with the best intentions of consecrating their lives to God, live lives set apart for God, but they became self-righteous and turned into specialists in legalism. Consequently, God and His law were grossly misrepresented as heartless, harsh, joyless, loveless, insensitive, and condemning. Brothers and sisters, when you speak the truth of God self-righteously, harshly, and heartlessly, do you realize that you're harboring the same attitude as the Pharisees? The fact that you speak you speak God's truth, does not excuse you, does not excuse your condemning, harsh, and condemning, uh, condemning attitude. No excuse whatsoever. You can't say, well, God, I was speaking your truth. So what? We're compelled to speak the truth in love and always in grace. That is why we must be on guard against legalism or Pharisaism and cry out to God for His mercy and deliverance from this deadly virus. As Garland writes, legalism is inward and upward and results in a narcissistic selfishness. God is only interested in us and not the likes of them. And this oppressive uh, morally superior attitude is captured in a short, simple song by Jonathan Swift, an 18th century Anglo-Irish satirist. It goes like this, we are God's chosen few, all others will be damned, there's room enough in hell for you, we can't have heaven crammed. See, let's see this moral superiority. We're the good guys. We're the righteous ones. The gays, the trans, the atheists. We all go to hell. And that's where they deserve to be. Let me finish with a quick story by Tony Campolo. He had flown into Honolulu and was unable to sleep. So he ventured into an all-night cafe where he overheard a group of prostitutes talking. You might have heard this story before. It's worth repeating. One mentioned to her friends that the next day was her 39th birthday. Another replied scornfully, What do you want? Birthday party? She retreated into a defensive shell. I've never had one in my whole life. Why should I expect one now? You're right. It struck Campolo that it would be a good idea to conspire with the owner of the cafe to throw her a surprise birthday party the next night. A cake was baked, and all was prepared. The cries of happy birthday from a small group of friends and this stranger left this prostitute stunned. She was shocked that anyone would go through so much trouble just for her. She asked if she could take the cake home and then left with her prize. You can get a sense how special that birthday was for her when you've never had birthdays celebrated in your honor. You starve of such an occasion. 
When she left, Campolo offered to pray and prayed for her salvation, prayed for her life to change and for God to be good to her. The prayer startled the owner who asked antagonistically, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? Campolo responded that he belonged to a church that threw birthday parties with prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Now there's something that Jesus would have done. Not look at the prostitutes sneering at them. Oh, dirty whores. I wish I was not in the cafe at the same time as them. I wish they wouldn't speak so loudly amongst themselves. Is this some sort of a break? Here I am here at the diner, wanting some peace and quiet. It's all ruined by these whores. Great. That's how a legalist would have responded. What about you? If you can picture yourself in that situation, what would your response be? I think Kimpolo teaches us or gives us a glimpse of what Jesus would probably have done. So I want to warn us again. There's a, a deadlier virus than COVID. And I'm not in any way poo-pooing the seriousness of COVID. Okay, I'm not being uh, sarcastic in any shape or form. But there is a deadlier virus than COVID, and it is called legalism. And do not think that just because you're not displaying symptoms of legalism, that, that virus is not there. It's just lying dormant. All of us are potential Pharisees. All of us have it in us to be like the Pharisees, just like we read in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, you are relentless in offering your grace to everyone and anyone, including those who are saved, like us. Just because we're saved, Lord, it does not mean that we need your grace any less. In fact, more. Because now that we know the truth, we're held more accountable. And yet you respond to us graciously, lovingly, mercifully. You speak to us. You reach out to us in relationship, not through a rule book, even though your rule's important, your laws are important. But, God, they're not about keeping rules. They're about knowing you. They're about understanding your character behind these rules. They reveal your character, and it's your character that you want us to see. So your law is not a rule book in the way we understand a rule book that is heartless, that is just cold in letter form, without any heart whatsoever. Teach us, O oh God, as we read your word, that we also discern the heart in which these laws are spoken. Because it's so important that we hear you, hear the tone, hear your spirit, hear your heart. And not just look at a bunch of letters and say, well, this is what it says, and this is what we've got to do, and that's the end of it. It's not, at the end, it's not the end of it, Lord, just by us fulfilling it. Because in doing so, God, we become self-righteous. We become hard and harsh. And so we cry out to you collectively as a body at Windsor, and we cry out to you, and we say, Lord, in all of us, there is a potential to be a Pharisee. And we ask that you be merciful to us because that is one thing that ticked you off the most, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to not be like the Pharisees. 
Teach us to walk like you did, Jesus, who fulfilled the law, but did it in such a graceful, loving, compassionate way. May we also be like that. May we speak the truth and always speak the truth in love. And whenever we are legalistic, whenever we are self-righteous, please convict us because it's so ugly. Convict us, Lord. And give us the strength and the courage to be the complete opposite of a legalist. And we're confident that you will do that. Thank you, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.